0: Greetings again, everyone. We had a very encouraging telephone response to the television program this morning. Over 600 telephone calls, which is, uh, I don't think it's a record, but it's sure a whole lot better than it has been for the last few weeks. Maybe there's a reason for that. Even though I advertised The Real Jesus Book, which I've advertised for several years on television, maybe it was just the way I approached it, because we are uh, reaching a certain number of new people every time. I want to tell you just briefly a little bit about what's happening, although I will save the details for a letter that I've already written, which should be printed this next week to go to the entire, uh, first class mailing list or the donor list. We are thinking about either changing our time or canceling little SPN cable altogether. We've been very disappointed in the response on a Monday morning time. It's been very minuscule. We don't really think it is worth the dollars. But in the meantime, we've been offered time on a major Houston television station on the weekend, I think in this case on a Saturday morning at about 9 or 9.30, I forget exactly. And also the Akron station, WAKR, channel 23 up there on, or is that the Saturday? That Sunday at 9, p.m., 9 a.m. in the morning, which is an excellent time on Sunday. Uh, through no fault of our own, it was merely that the avail was there It ends up that we will follow the world tomorrow speaker, whoever that is going to be, in Houston. And uh, that should prove interesting, at least for members of the church down there. But we're very encouraged that we're going to be able to be on those two very large city markets. Uh, I'm going to look up the populations combined of the two, but Houston, as you know, is one of the really great cities in the United States. And Akron is right in the middle of that very heavily populated Ohio Valley. We have strong local support in each area. Uh, strong and growing churches in each area under credentialed ministers of the Church of God International, so that's another plus. I'm simply laying the case before the entire mailing list that right now we don't have the money. Now, I'm not going to, quote, step out on faith, meaning rush across a lake with a quarter inch of ice when I weigh 600 pounds. Uh, I don't believe in uh, making a foolish decision or not in counting the cost. what we are saying is that if the exact same level of increase occurs again this year as it did last year we will make it with no problem if it doesn't if it slacks off and if we don't grow at the same rate then we may have to do some adjustments later on meaning that we'll probably have to cancel one or the other of them or something like that but in the meantime we just really hate to turn it down because the only way this work is going to grow is by getting more and more outlets in the media it's not going to grow by remaining static and by having all of these people out there which are millions and millions who once again heard about what was happening and I was as you know on the telephone for nine hours literally the story about my father and his life and his death and what happened between us and how I came to be in Tyler Texas at least in some brief way or another was in literally hundreds upon hundreds of newspapers and on hundreds of television channels all across the United States and in other countries. It was an event which gained coverage in the Philippines, South Africa, Australia, in Great Britain, over the wire services, over literally hundreds of newspapers. If you had all the clippings here, they'd stack up probably as high as you are. That, you could not have bought that kind of publicity even if all it meant was putting your name before the general public once again for probably tens of millions of dollars. Now, the phone calls that I receive and the letters I receive, and I can share a couple of three points with you, all the way from Alaska. I'm thinking of one letter I read just, I think, Thursday. Another one from up around Prince George, somewhere in the Yukon Territory or northern British Columbia that I read in the middle of the week, from worldwide members couple of whom said that they fully expected that just before my father's death or at his death that I would once again begin to appear on the world tomorrow as the speaker. Now, some of them are co-workers as opposed to members, uh, so they may not know all the facts about what's happening in that organization or what their justification is for the successor that has been appointed. But repeatedly people say, we miss you out here. We really miss your program." and people will come up to me after one of these personal appearance campaigns and this has happened all over the country from Kissimmee in Florida up to you know Seattle and Portland or up in Chicago area or wherever and they will say we really miss that program when are we going to have your telecast back in our area again and I will go through my usual explanation well we're quite a small little organization and we are doing all we can do we're right up to our lower lip financially right now we can't move another inch until the financial wherewithal is there so when enough people just like you that want to see the television program in your area realize the way we are funded and they want to help support it then we will be here again I think one of the big mistakes that was made years ago was the portrayal of a never-ending series of pictures on glossy four-color covers which showed fabulous buildings, glistening monuments, lovely balustrades, fountains, uh, walkways, beautiful uh, plush offices, and just glittering facilities. I spoke to that point time and again within the other organization, and it did come back on us because first of all, with a policy, which I subscribe to, which is quite correct, of never putting a price tag on the gospel, and of telling people that all of your literature is absolutely free of charge. Yet on the other hand, that combined with a never-ending series of beautiful magazines and pictures that show the fabulous facilities, and then you have this television program that is obviously quite expensively produced, people come to the wrong conclusion. Yesterday, late evening, late afternoon, I'm talking to one of my neighbors out there who was in the oil business. And I was talking to him about how the oil business is off and he was telling me it certainly is. He was hurting and thinking about having to look for some other supplementary type of work because he's in the leasing end of it. And he got to asking about my television program and he said, uh, How much do the stations pay you for it? Uh, you know, this is common. I mean, it is commonplace that many people, and he, my answer astounded him. I said, pay me. I said, we pay them. I said, if you wanted to be on television, you could do it, but you've got to go down here and say, I want to hire the uh, personnel, and I want to buy the studio time, and I want to make a TV tape, and then I want to go to these various program directors and see if I can buy time on a station. They look at their rate card and they tell you what it's worth. $6,000 for one half hour in one medium city on an evening uh, some weekday. Really? He didn't know that. I said, no, we pay for it. I said, I've got to pay for the production time and pay for the personnel and pay for the tape and pay for the shipping cost, pay for the time, and then we pay for the free literature that we send the people. Oh, I see, and then eventually the money comes back because they support you. I said, well, one out of maybe 20, 30, forty thousand might eventually support the program, but only one out of those large numbers, and sometimes only people who have been watching the program for years and receiving literature for years, and finally they may begin to send in a little bit of money and help support the program. So I am encouraged, first of all, that we are going to begin to branch out and to get some major outlets in some of the big city markets, as they're called in the industry in the United States, and I hope that that is just the beginning. I've written a letter which I very plainly state the case. As I've said before, I will not send out emergency letters until I have moved into a mobile home, and I haven't done that yet, so this is not a desperate emergency sacrifice kind of a letter, but it is a letter which does state the case of where we are in the work and where we certainly hope to go. And I will appreciate your prayers on that behalf because the only way we're going to grow is if enough of these people like the ones that have written to me in the last week that I told you about who missed the program and who have been co-workers in the other organization decide that they want to hear the gospel preached in the same way by the same person using the same Bible that brought them into contact with the truth and in many cases into the church of God or made them decide to begin to support the work of God in the first place. And there are literally millions upon millions of them out there. I am known by at least a third of the population of the United States and probably 80% of the population of Canada. And I think that that should be taken into account and that we need to realize that it's just a matter of exposure, of getting the program out there where people can see it. There are people within the worldwide church of God who still do not know what happened to me. They don't know where I am. They never hear my name mentioned. Now, there were two versions of the funeral. I'm still making some announcements, but I'll have to hurry. One was the version that came out, the official version in the press and in the television cameras of this world. Now, worldly people feel that it's usually standard procedure that when you have a funeral that you take a picture of the family. And there's the family sitting there. And there's the casket. And there's the family, the survivors, of the person who was being buried. But there was another version that came out and was circulated all over the worldwide church. And their cameras somehow, I guess there was a ratchet in there that just before they got to the family, the cameras, as they were panning, and they were picking up pictures of, you know, Ron Kelly, Herman Hay, D. Party, and they just stopped. And they didn't continue on over. They didn't show me or my children or my wife or my sisters or any of my father's family. Now, I don't think we're in the worldwide News. I glanced at one picture on the back page. Maybe we are. I don't know. Bottom page, page, there is one there. Well, good, because I thought it was very tacky of them on the television program they circulated not to show a picture of the family. But that's just an interesting comment in passing. Behind me is a stone... Fireplace, and it looks very, very permanent. We're attached to very permanent things. I think sometimes we look upon permanence in our own environment as being the piano with the pictures of the grandkids on it, our old favorite rocking chair, the television set, the potted plant, the doily under it, our books and magazines, familiar things that have been around us for many, many months, for many years. When that permanence is suddenly interrupted, it is one of the most traumatic experiences of all of our lives. Just the other night, down in Houston, an entire little mobile home community was wiped out by tornadoes that touched down, and some of the people were being interviewed and they were standing there with nothing but splinters where their home and everything that they owned and possessed had been just hours before. Now, here are the police and the red lights, and these shocked people are all crying, and I think one person was killed, and many were injured, and in just a moment, with a noise that sounded like several runaway freight trains, their whole livelihood, their home, everything they possessed and accumulated, and of course, people who live in these mobile homes are usually people that are either working people, just barely getting a start in life, or elderly people on a fixed income, and they don't have a lot of this world's goods, and everything they have is probably right there in that mobile home, and in moments, it was all gone. Obliterating all of that feeling or that aura of permanence is a a shock, a trauma that just about destroys you. If there is anything more permanent than the earth under your feet, I don't know what it is, we sure trust good old planet earth. We walk around upon it, we are familiar with its mountains, hills and valleys, its great rivers, its bays and estuaries, its vast oceans. We're familiar with the globe, we see it continually on weather news when from a satellite aloft we see a picture of the entirety of the world and then it zooms in on all of North America and then zooms in on our area and we actually see in photography practically every day anymore an actual picture that is coming back from cameras in satellites, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles out there in space. And we look upon the world as being very, very permanent. Now, these rocks behind my back here, as you can see, are filled with fossils. All those little uneven places are tiny shells. Now, that tells you that at one time, those rocks weren't rocks. They were liquid. They were flowing like a turgid, muddy, kind of a tide filled with silts, muds, clays, sands, and the rolling little bodies of these kind of uh, clams and various shellfish that had been unearthed in some sort of a catastrophe and these little shellfish were buried and they were buried intact instead of just gradually through the erosion of the waves incessantly on the seashore being ground down to sand like most of them are they were buried intact now when and where did all of that happen over in second Peter the third chapter is a scripture that talks about the fact that people today in education And I think oftentimes people in religion, certainly atheistic communism, are willingly ignorant of something. It says in 2 Peter and the third chapter, and I'm going to begin in the first verse, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And we recall last week I was reading from 1 Peter, the uh, first portion of his first letter here, about how he was telling them about his eyewitness account of having seen the glory of Jesus Christ. He said that after his departure, he wanted to leave them a record so that they would never forget. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, plural, the apostles, plural, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, first of all reminding them, telling them this is something to remember, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Now, those are people who ridicule the truth, who simply make light of it, set it aside. They are people who are cynics, and they are people who use uh, ridicule and various forms of disparaging remarks and put-downs and so on called scoffers. Walking after their own lusts. So they acknowledge no moral standards. They acknowledge no Ten Commandments, no Bible. They acknowledge no constraints on the laws of God. And what is their argument? They say, where is the promise of His coming? Now, there are many great disappointments to which we can point in history. The great disappointment that struck the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The days of Martin Luther when he said, Surely time could not go on and Christ was going to come before he died. The fact that the Apostle Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up and so on and shall be changed. And he thought that Christ was going to come while he was yet alive. There are many, many people who point to prophets of the past who have set dates and who have said that Christ is going to come by a certain time. And there are others who scoff and say, Well, you see, this is merely further proof that none of these prophets who believe in the second coming of Christ are really accurate, it's never going to occur. For, their argument is, since the fathers fell asleep from ancient times, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They argue, you see, everything is cyclical. Everything goes back and forth like a pendulum. There are droughts, and then there are rainy seasons. And the world cools and the world warms up. There were all of the ice ages, there was a gradual retreat of the ice ages, there is the Pleistocene age, and the Eocene, Oligocene, Miocene, and during these advancing ice sheets across northern Wisconsin all the way down to Nebraska and into Missouri and northern Arkansas, and then they retreated again, clear up into Canada, then they came back again and so on, eroding, wearing away so that Wisconsin, which claims it's the dairy state, nevertheless is basically glacial till and has very poor soil and the mineral deposits are simply not there that have been scoured away by glacial activity, and that can be proved, by the, by the way. And that there was a huge lake up there where Niagara and the Great Lakes are today called Lake Agassiz, and there was a gigantic lake of which the Great Salt Lake is a tiny puddle in the center where it used to be literally hundreds and hundreds of miles from shore to shore as great inland basins contained billions of cubic yards of water which were yet to run off the continents in some great cataclysmic upheaval of the past. And because people basically believe in evolution and in the gradual, epical change of creatures and resident forces and natural causes and all these cycles and so on, they argue Christ is not going to come. There isn't going to be any great tribulation. There won't be sudden destruction. There won't be cataclysm. We won't be shocked like a person in a mobile home with a tornado that simply took the home and reduced it to splinters and they're standing there where the foundation used to be when our whole nation disappears like that. Why, the warnings of these prophets aren't going to come true. I once had a luncheon with a famous author. You've probably heard of him, unless if you're not a Western fan, you may not have. Louis L'Amour. And I was sitting having lunch with Louis L'Amour and we were talking about a couple of his latest books. And I began to say, you know, and I shouldn't have done this, it's not good taste. You shouldn't tell authors what to write. But I said, with your ability to write, it would really be fascinating if you would zero in on an average American family caught in the midst of a nuclear war and to see what would happen. And I got to talking about armed gangs marauding in neighborhoods to get what is in the freezers of their neighbors and people defending themselves with guns and what all might take place. Well, I was surprised at his answer. He said, yeah, but you know, people have always thought there's going to come the end of the world. He said, I've studied a lot of history, especially a lot of European history. And he said, you know, back in Central Europe, during the days of Attila the Hun, people would see that here would come Attila the Hun with all of his Mongol and Oriental hordes, and he would sweep across the landscape and just utterly eradicate whole towns and villages and small cities and the scorched earth policy of these ravenous... Huns have uh, made people think the end of the world is coming. And there was nothing but a lunar landscape behind them. And there have always been people who believed the end of the world was nigh. And he really sort of poo-pooed the idea. Well, I backed off from it, but it, it put something in my mind. I thought, well, here is a an historian and a multi-millionaire a person who is writing dozens of Western books, who wrote uh, The Way the West was won, and Sitka, and all of these Western shoot-em-up type of novels that he has made famous, and he's a multimillionaire many times over. And yet he had, in a sense, the same argument. People have always thought the end of the world was nigh. Now, I'm not going to remind you, like I've done in many telecasts, about all of the satellites overhead, or the nuclear weapons in Russian submarines, or overkill to the tune of 50 worlds like ours, or the potential of nuclear war by accident, what's happening over right now near the Gulf of Sidra in the Mediterranean, or what's happening between the Israelis and, of course, Gaddafi, or what's happening in the Philippines, or what's happening in South Yemen, or what's happening in the oil industry, or the attempt to balance the budget and still have a strong defense, which is impossible, or the impending potential of a great cataclysmic, uh, interruption in the entire world or global economic structure and that a Great Depression might befall us because that would bore you. I've talked about those things for years. And many people are getting convinced they will never happen. But notice what he goes on to say. Because of this argument about there's there's no reason to worry that Christ is going to come. Everything is continued. The ancients fall asleep and they're buried and dead and here we are. We'll be buried and dead and the world will go on. It's just cyclical. Verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, by the command, a divine command, the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The world that then was looked somewhat like ours, and this is ushering you upon the scene after the creation of Adam and between the time of Adam until the time of Noah whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. I don't have time to launch into a study of paleontology, geology, of comparative anatomy or physiology or microbiology or any of the dynamic and other aspects of geology which actually are nothing but a study of the earth and how it came to be in the way it is today. But let me just say that there are some very important books. If you want to do some further research, you ought to read. I'm going to be quoting from some materials today, one of which is called The Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. I used to use that as a textbook in my second-year Bible class in Ambassador College. Another is called Evolutionary Geology and New Catastrophism by George McCready Price. And another one is called The Deluge Story in Stone by Nelson. In a nutshell, evolution says all things gradually evolved over aeons of time, billions of years, and that these rocks were laid down over vast, epochal periods of time, and that the idea of the massive burial of billions of creatures, in other words, catastrophe, catastrophism, something that happened suddenly, is absolutely untrue. And yet, and we're just taking a few moments to remind you, did you know that as recently as the early part of this century that the ivory industry in the permafrost and the vast tundra of Siberia was one of the biggest industries of the area from mammoth tusks. Did you know that in, in part of the gold rush that even goes down to the day of bulldozers in Alaska, and I can quote a few of these points for you, that people were digging near a river bank north of Mount McKinley where the Tanana River joins the Yukon. Gold miners were doing you know, bulldozing in there and they began to scoop out Hundreds of thousands of all types of woolly mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, huge horses, giant oxen, saber-toothed tigers, mountain lions, wolves that stood about eight feet at the withers, giant bison, and all of these creatures were torn asunder. They were not buried... And they were not merely washed there as bloated bodies would in a flood after they drown, But trunks were severed from the mammoths, forelegs, heads. They were actually twisted. There were only torsos remaining. Heads were missing. They were absolutely torn asunder and twisted. People began to wonder how in the world it could have happened. And finally, as they began to reason and to put together what we know about the forces of nature, and you will remember this from the explosion of Mount St. Helens, they deduced that the only thing which could have caused that incredible force was number one, the blast of a gargantuan volcanic explosion, and the shock wave and the wind from that, which literally blew these animals apart and then instantly an inundation with gigantic floodwaters which washed them into these areas, and then almost instantly they were quick-frozen where they were, and they have remained quick-frozen to this day because they were digging in permafrost or muddy, mucky kind of terrain which is frozen just about that far below the surface and remains frozen all year round. And believe it or not, a tremendous percentage of the world looks like that. A couple of quotations. Ivan T. Sanderson wrote in a book. Uh, let me see if I can recall the uh, title of this one. I may not have written it down, but it's a book on this subject. And I'll quote what he said: "Riddle of the quick." Oh, that's the name of the title. Yeah, "Riddle of the quick frozen mammoths." His name is Ivan T. Sanderson. "Riddle of the quick frozen mammoths." was a book that he wrote about this entire phenomenon in Siberia as well as Alaska. He said, and I quote, "...a mammoth was found early in this century with its head sticking out of a bank in the Zova River in northern Siberia. Some portions of the head had been eaten by wolves, but tongue, linings of mouth, lips preserved. Portions of the animal's last meal were found stuck between his teeth, but sedges, buttercups, and summer-blooming bro- grasses and plants were there, which could only have been eaten in a very warm, moist, summery kind of a climate." He said this, and I quote, Freezing meat is not quite so simple a process as one might think. To preserve it properly, it must be frozen very rapidly. If it is frozen slowly, large crystals form in the liquid of its cells. These crystals burst the cells, and the meat begins to deteriorate. Now, Frank C. Hibben, who wrote a book called The Lost Americans, he's an American archaeologist, and he is speaking here of the lost American bison, saber-toothed tigers, woolly rhinoceroses, mammoths, and the animals, and he said this, and I quote, It looks as though the middle of some cataclysmic catastrophe of 10,000 years ago, in the middle of it, the whole Alaskan world of living plants and animals was suddenly frozen in mid-motion in a grim charade. He said the frozen muck has preserved in a remarkable manner tendons, ligaments, fragments of skin and hair, hooves, and even in some cases, portions of the flesh and bone of these dead animals. In one place at Cripple Creek near Fairbanks, Alaska, we found the shoulder of a mammoth with the flesh and skin yet preserved. We tasted the black and sand impregnated meat. It was terrible tasting and gritty, and yet an Eskimo dog wandered by and ate the stuff readily. There were gold miners up there, and when the bulldozers came along and began to scoop out hundreds of these animals, and expose them to the warming sun, the rotting stench of their bodies that had been frozen for who knows how many thousands of years was so bad that they had to abandon their camps for a period of time and then come back later on after the animals had decomposed. Now, prior to the flood of Noah, the world was very different than we know it today. I'm going to go along here with just another couple of verses and then go quickly back to the book of Genesis. Back in the... Reference here in 2 Peter 3. They are willingly ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Now, as you well know, you cannot read of that in any geology textbook in the world today, in any educational institution with the conceivable exception of a handful of smaller church-oriented colleges or you know, theological seminaries. You could not go to Dartmouth or to Harvard or to Oxford or Princeton or Yale or USC and take geology or paleontology and read about the Noatian flood, of which there are hundreds of billions of cubic yards of evidence. It simply is missing. It isn't there. But when you pick up a textbook on the origin, let's say, of the English language, even in the English textbook, in the very beginning, like you'll find in the world book under each letter, of the alphabet, they will take you all the way back to the old Phoenician character. And you'll see an upside down or a sideways kind of an A. And you'll learn what the first character was that men scribbled on a cave somewhere, and how it gradually became the alphabet, as it's called, of our day, named after the Greek words alpha, beta, or the two characters of the Greek, alphabet. But as you do, you will learn about evolution. And they will tell you about petroglyphs and later on hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt and that men made marks that were a symbol for something. In a mathematics textbook, the same thing is true. They'll show you where numbers came from and how man began to put them together. So in every textbook, whether it's on biology, obviously, or geology, obviously, or on any of the life sciences, obviously, and especially in history, and having to do with sociology, any textbook you pick up, from grade school to junior high to high school to college, all the way to a doctor's degree in nuclear physics, is going to be shot through with the concept, there is no God. There is no God. There is no Christ at His right hand. Jesus Christ is not coming back to this earth. It's all a fable. That isn't true. And they teach nothing but evolution. Now he goes on to say in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and destruction, perdition, of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now probably only a handful of people in this room have ever been to El Escorial, outside of Madrid. Origins. Somewhere up in the snowy fastness of a great mountain called Ararat, which is really a whole system of mountains right on the uh, Russian border with Turkey, is a huge vessel. I don't know what shape that vessel is in today, whether it is mostly flattened or whether it is burst at the keel and is lying there all opened, whether it is in fact underneath a glacier and has been ground to bits and portions of it scattered from maybe the 17 to the 14,000 foot level. But I want to read to you a little bit about the potential discovery of Noah's ark. There have been some fascinating stories in the past about whether or not the ark was really discovered. First of all, however, do you realize that every civilization on this earth, from the ancient Toltecs, Aztecs, and Incas, to the ancient tribes that inhabited all of Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, including the Hawaiian Islands and Easter Island, including all of North America and right here in Texas, ancient Babylon, ancient Chinese, ancient Japanese, ancient Greeks, that in every culture on this earth, there is a flood tradition. It is not missing in any ancient stone age culture. Let me give you just a few of them. A tradition of the Incas says that the third age of man ended in a cosmic disaster, a flood. One legend states that a shepherd and his family were warned that the world would shortly be destroyed by a deluge. And so the shepherd collected his llamas, his llamas, and his children, and took them to the summit of a mountain called Ancasmarca. At that moment, the sea broke its bounds and rushed over the land, filling valleys, covering plains, and lasted for five days. On the fifth day, the waters began to subside and the stars to reappear. The leeward islands, a tradition from the leeward islands, declares that Rua Hutu, the ocean god, was sleeping when a fisherman's hook became entangled in his hair down in the depths of the sea. The roused god rose to the surface, upbraided the fisherman and warned he was going to destroy the whole wicked land. When the fisherman repented of his deed, the angry God forgave him and told him to go to a small island where he, his wife, and his child would be safe. And thereafter the ocean rose, and the next morning only the very tops of the mountains appeared above the sea, and soon all of these were covered and all the inhabitants of the land perished with the sole exception of that one fisherman who had repented of snagging the God's hair in his hook and his family. In the Fiji Islands, there is a tradition that a great rain took place and that the islands were all finally submerged. But before the very highest places were covered, two large double canoes appeared. And Rokova, the god of carpenters, and Rokola, his head workman, were in them. And they picked up some of the people and rescued them from the floodwaters. Guess how many of the tradition says were saved? Eight. The Papagos, the Indian tribe of northwestern Mexico that Louis Lamore likes to write about because they were great trackers, relate that there was a great flood from which Moctezuma, a divine hero, escaped, having been warned of its coming by the mystical spirit coyote. Moctezuma hollowed out a boat for himself so he would be ready for the deluge and thus escaped it. A native Mexican historian, and he still had an Indian name, it's called Ixil Xochitl, spelled I-X-T-L-I-L-X-O-C-H-I-T-L kind of a tongue twister said this and I quote It is found in the histories of the Toltecs that this age in the first world as they call it lasted 1,716 years that men were destroyed by tremendous rains and lightning from the sky and even all the land without the exception of anything and the highest mountains were covered and submerged by water 15 cubits high And here they add other fables of how men came to multiply from the few who escaped this destruction, which nearly signifies a closed chest, and how after men had multiplied they erected a very high zwakali, as they called it, or an altar, a pyramid, which is today a tower of great height, in order to take refuge in it should any future deluge come along. A very ancient Aztec flood legend, translated from the Codex uh, Chimalpocca, it is, states that during the sun age all mankind was lost and drowned and they became fish it says this the very mountains were swallowed up by the flood but before the flood began Titlachuan had warned the man nota that's interesting down there this ancient Aztec legend calls the man who was warned to escape the flood nota N-O-T-A and his wife Nina how about that we have a lady named that right here, saying, Make no more pulque. That's a, a kind of a, a drink that they make out of squashing the heart out of a century plant or a cactus, and they can get drunk on it. So he said, Make no more pulque, but hollow a great cypress into which you shall enter in the month. And they named the month in their language. The water shall near the sky. They entered, and when that god had shut them in, he said to the man, You shall eat but a single ear of maize, and your wife one also. And when they had eaten one ear of maize, they prepared to go forth, for the water was tranquil. And that's the end of that story. The oldest flood of all is found in the Rig Veda, an Indian hymn and poem. And a fish tells Manu, if he protects the fish and returns him to the ocean, when he is of full size, he will, t- will protect Manu from a great deluge which will sweep away all other uh, creatures. There is an Eskimo tradition that says this. A wind carried all men away. They fastened several boats to one another. The waves traversed the rocky mountains. A great wind drove the boats. And presently the moon and the earth disappeared. Men died and perished in the waves. The Hawaiian tradition is that natives of Hawaii claimed the world became careless of worship and very wicked. And only one man in all the world was righteous. It was a man named Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and stored it with food taking plants and animals on board the flood waters came up and destroyed all mankind except Nu'u and his family. An ancient Chinese legend talks about a man named Fuhi, the reputed founder of all Chinese civilization and how he escaped the waters of a deluge and, and reappeared as the first man at the reproduction of a renovated world with his wife, three sons, and three daughters. There are other flood legends in the Vogels of the Uran mountains of Russia among the Laplanders, the Norwegians, the Welsh, the Lithuanians, the Assyrians, and Babylonians, and even the poet and historian Manetho from Egypt, who lived about 250 B.C., states there was a worldwide watery catastrophe in one which was called Toth alone was saved. And there are many, many more I won't go into. A few years back, I was doing a television program at Ambassador College in Pasadena. The phone rang, and they wanted me to talk to a gentleman who was mounting a search for Noah's Ark, and he came in with some other people and showed me a big pile of documents, and they did go over there I guess, but they wanted me to join in and perhaps even help with the funding of it. This was probably in about 1969 or 70, somewhere along in there. There have been many such expeditions, but now I want to tell you a little bit about some of them and about what they claim to have discovered. I think all of you may know that there have been alleged sightings of Noah's Ark over a period of many, many years, and quite a few expeditions up to Mount Ararat, which took place clear back during the 19th century. In at least two of them, one Turkish and one Russian, they actually may have found the Ark. But there's no proof, and sometimes you begin to wonder about these stories as to how all of this documentation could have disappeared. But I'll read it for the way it is, and you can judge. There were reports that in 1883 an earthquake in the region of Ararat caused huge chunks of ice to be dislodged from the mountain, and subsequently a Turkish expedition claimed to have found the wooden prowl of an ancient ship protruding from a glacier. Despite persistent reports of various sightings of parts of Noah's Ark, attempts to locate the Ark had always been frustrated by bad weather and terrible snowstorms, and of course this was long before the advent of aircraft and helicopters. And, of course, some people were killed by uh, snowslides or avalanches. Some were simply frozen to death. Some died by falling into crevasses. Some starved to death. Some got sick and died. And Russian bears actually killed some of the adventurers who went up there. One explorer said, God has always been good to me, but I figured out he does not wish me to find Noah's Ark because he'd attempted to do so on six different expeditions. In another case, an Associated Press dispatch from Istanbul in November 13, 1948 quoted a Kurdish landowner in the Ararat area as claiming to have discovered the petrified remains of what appeared to be a ship in a canyon about two-thirds of the way up the mountain. It came to light when unusually warm weather during the summer melted the perennial covering of snow and ice. In the early 1960s, a team of American archaeologists reported finding several pieces of wood, apparently part of a giant boat, and that was some of the documentation these people brought to me, 14,000 feet up on the slopes of Ararat. The evidence suggested the wood came from a boat about two-thirds the size of the Queen Mary, which is 1,019 feet long and 118 feet wide. And in the days just before the Russian Revolution, a man named Vladimir Roskovitsky and other Russian aviators were stationed at a lonely air outpost about 20 miles northwest of the mountain. One day they climbed to an unusual height and they couldn't stay there very long because they didn't have oxygen 14,000 feet, and were flying right around, of course, below the summit of Mount Ararat. Roskovitsky relates the following. He came to this country and died an old man, and died claiming everything that he wrote and everything he saw was absolutely true. He said, as I looked down at the great stone battlements surrounding the lower part of this mountain, I remembered having heard that it had not been climbed since the year 700 before Christ when some pilgrims were supposed to have gone up there to scrape tar off an old shipwreck. And by the way, do you know who he's quoting? Josephus. Josephus relates that journey to Mount Ararat and claims people were making amulets out of the tar, the bitumen, which had frozen solid and then become petrified and was rock hard and looked upon them as sacred objects among the Kurds who lived near the foot of the mountain. This Russian remembered something out of his history lessons from Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote long before the time of Jesus Christ. He said, I remember that 700 years before Christ when some pilgrims were supposed to have gone up there to scrape tar off an old shipwreck to make good luck emblems to wear around their necks, they believed this would keep their crops from being being destroyed by excessive rainfall. The legend said that they had left in haste when a bolt of lightning had struck near them and had never again returned. Silly ancients. Who ever heard of looking for a shipwreck on a mountaintop? He said he was making circles around the snow-capped dome, and then in a long, swift glide down the south side, he said, and I quote, "...we suddenly came upon a perfect little gem of a lake, blue as an emerald, but still frozen over on the shady side. We circled around and returned for another look at it, and suddenly my companion whirled around and yelled. He excitedly pointed down at the overflow of the lake. I looked and nearly fainted. A submarine? No, it wasn't, for it had stubby masts." but the top was rounded over with only a flat catwalk about five feet across which ran down the length of it. What a strange craft, built as though the designer had expected the waves to roll over the top most of the time and had engineered it to wallow in the sea like a log, with those stubby masts carrying only enough sail to keep it facing the waves. Years later in the Great Lakes in the United States I saw the famous whaleback ore carriers that had this same kind of round deck. We flew down as close as safety permitted and took several circles around it. When we got close to it, we were shocked at the immense size of the thing. It was as long as a city block and would compare very favorably in size to the modern battleships of today. It was grounded on the shore of the lake with about one foot of the rear end still running out into the water. Its extreme rear was three-quarters underwater. It had been partly dismantled on one side near the front, and on the other side there was a huge door nearly 20 feet square, but the door shutter was gone. This seemed quite out of proportion, as even today ships seldom have doors half that large. Well, they were met with nothing but catcalls, hoots, and jeers when they returned to their base and told the story, he says. But they claimed that it was Noah's Ark, and later on his captain wanted to report to the Russian government, and so the Tsar sent two special companies of soldiers to climb the mountain. It took them about a month after starting up the mountain to chop a trail as they went, and finally they reached the Ark took complete measurements, drew plans of it, photographed it, and the information was sent to the Tsar, according to Roscovitsky. He said, and I quote, The Ark was found to contain hundreds of small rooms, and some rooms very large, with high ceilings. The large rooms usually had a fence of great timbers across them, some of which were over two feet thick, as though designed to hold beasts several times as large as an elephant. Other rooms were lined with tiers of cages, somewhat like one sees today at a poultry show. Only instead of chicken wire, they had rows of tiny, raw iron bars along the front. Everything was heavily painted with wax-like paint resembling a shellac. The workmanship of the craft showed all the signs of high type of civilization. The wood used throughout was oleander, which belongs to the cypress family, and never rots. Together with the fact that it was painted and frozen over almost the entire year accounted for its perfect preservation. The expedition found on the peak of the mountain above the ship the burned remains of the timber missing out of the one side of the ship. It seemed that these timbers had been hauled up to the top of the peak and used to build a tiny one-room shrine, inside of which was a rough stone hearth like the altars the Hebrews used to use for sacrifices. It had either caught fire from the altar or had been struck by lightning as the timbers were considerably burned and charred over and the roof was completely burned off. He concluded by saying this, A few days after this expedition sent the report to the Tsar, the government was overthrown and godless Bolshevism took over so that the records were probably destroyed in the zeal of the Bolshevists to discredit all religion and belief in the truth of the Bible. We white Russians of the air fleet escaped through Armenia and four of us came to America where we could be free to live according to the good book which we have seen for ourselves to be absolutely true, even as fantastic sounding a thing as a world flood. Now, you can judge as to whether or not that is true or many other accounts of the sighting of Noah's Ark. According to the sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Genesis, though, a few facts about the Ark, we can see where God told Noah to build the Ark and exactly the length and how it was to be made. He was told to make it with rooms or nests or compartments in the sixth chapter of Genesis, and he was to make it out of gopher wood. There is no way to figure out what kind of wood that was. It's the only time that word is used in the Bible, in the ancient Hebrew, and there is no known wood today that matches that statement, gopher wood. So we really don't know what the wood was. He was to smear it with bitumen, which is a natural substance, not unlike a very thick crude oil, which is a gummy, sticky, rosinous kind of a substance. And this is the fashion you shall make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. That's Genesis 6, 14 to 15. Now how long is a cubit? Well the standard cubit of the Hebrews is basically from the tip of your middle finger to the elbow which averages in average men about 18 inches. At that measurement the ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. But when the Hebrews came back from Babylon, they had a cubit which was slightly larger. It was not 18, but 22 inches long. And if that is the cubit that is meant in those writings, at this measurement, the ark would have been 547 feet long by 91 feet wide and 54 feet high. But there is another cubit mentioned in the Bible, which is the cubit of Ezekiel which I call the great cubit and which I prefer to believe is the one which God used because it's the cubit God described in the dimensions of the temple of God and the temple which is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And that ancient Hebrew cubit would have been 25 inches long making the ark possibly 600 feet by 100 feet wide by 60 feet high. I was on a, a World War II-type Essex-class aircraft carrier in the Korean War, and the ship was 888 feet long by 150 feet wide by 60 feet from the waterline to the flight deck, more than that to the top of the mast, to give you an idea. And it looked like it was about two city blocks long when you walked along underneath that overhanging flight deck. So even using the smaller cubit, the Ark's volume would have been 1,396,000 cubic feet. Now, let me tell you what that means. Translated, that means a carrying capacity equal to 522 standard American stock cars on a railway train. Or, that means eight freight trains with 65 cars in each train. That was the volume, the carrying capacity of that ship. But if you use the great cubit of Ezekiel, the 25 inch cubit, Then the volume of the ark would have been 3,600,000 cubic feet or equal to 25 trains with 52 cars in each one. The three decks of the ark would have contained an area of about the size of 36 college basketball courts. That is a huge ship. The tonnage has been calculated at somewhere between 40 and 50,000 tons. Do you know what my aircraft carrier weighed? 27,000 tons big big battleships weigh around 50,000 tons stood on end that ship would have been the height of a 45 story building the Smith Tower in downtown Seattle when I was a boy was the tallest building in Oregon on the west coast it was 30 stories high the ark would have been 15 stories taller if stood on its end Only in very recent times have modern ships been built that have been anywhere near that size. The Queen Elizabeth II, for example, built in 1968 and still going across the Atlantic, is 58,000 tons. The SS United States built in 1952, on which my folks and many other people have traveled, 51,000 tons. Now people have argued every conceivable argument the Ark wasn't big enough, It couldn't carry all of these animals, but you know Noah didn't have to carry any of the 18,000 species of fish or the 88,000 species of mollusks or 15,000 species of protozoans or others amounting to 142,000 species of marine animals. He really didn't have to carry more than 35,000 individual vertebrates, and believe it or not, even though you look at these great animals, the average size of all animals, when you take the average size, is the size of a sheep is the average size of all the animals that might have been in that ark. A standard two-deck stock car carries about 120 sheep per deck, or 240 total. To carry 35,000 animals, therefore, only 146 stock cars would have to be used. And yet, we were talking about the fact that even the smallest estimate for the size of the ark was the capacity of 522 stock cars. So Noah, no doubt, had plenty of room. Now, I honestly believe that two great events are going to occur before the end of this age. It's only a thought of mine, but I think that the Ark of the Covenant is someday going to be found. I think two Arks are going to be found. I think Noah's Ark is someday going to be revealed. I think somewhere buried on Mount Ararat, up there in those ice sheets or glacier fields, or perhaps by a frozen lake, is Noah's Ark or what remains of it. And I think that someday, perhaps as a result of nuclear war, the warming of the climate in that area, who knows, maybe some catastrophe. I imagine that we could go there if we knew where to look. And I want to just leave you with this thought. You can put your body inside an aircraft and, you know, in a matter of hours, you can be halfway around the world. When Mark and I went over there, it was a grueling trip, but we're sandwiched in between all the women and the babies and everything. And we're on a 747. We only stopped once from New York and that was in Vienna. And then the next stop and we're in Amman over in Jordan. Well, you can get there. Within a very few days from now, you could be equipped with some Kurdish guides and walking if you could do so, and you had that kind of physical stamina up the foothills, and you could have a month-long hike to take you up into the slopes of Mount Ararat. People have done this. They have brought back great slabs of wood. They have subjected the wood to radiocarbon and argon dating, and the wood has proved to be of incredible antiquity. There have been all sorts of claims of sighting and ancient beams... Have apparently been carried away from that site. I wonder whether or not God is going to lay bare the secret of Mount Ararat before the world, before all is said and done. But in the meantime, the evidences of a global deluge are absolutely universal. And they do not depend upon the traditions of the Babylonians or the Incas or the Toltecs or American Indians or the Hawaiians. They depend upon these rocks. That you can see in the fireplace right behind me, and the billions of cubic yards of the rocks under our feet, of the fact that a great catastrophe buried fossil life suddenly. And when you go by the next time and you see one of these machines out in a field pumping oil, and maybe the bigger the machine, of course, the deeper the oil well is, one of those great deep ones literally goes down thousands of feet, or perhaps two miles and more, straight down beneath the surface of the earth twice deeper than the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And down there are the remains of millions upon millions of huge creatures that once roamed this earth and were buried that deep under the rocks of this earth to provide fossil energy for modern day man. Now the story of how they got there is obvious to any child. There are methods by which these rocks were laid down there are dynamic methods by which those dinosaurs and those fossil creatures were buried beneath the rocks of this earth. They really walked the earth. They really lived. They are really there. The, testament, the testimony of the fact of the Noatian deluge is so obvious, it's no wonder that Peter says, they are willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But, he says, the heavens and the earth, which are now only by the fact of the word of that great God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Next time, when the world is completely destroyed, it will be in a lake, but not a lake, looking like a huge global sea of water, but a lake consisting of fire. And as Peter goes on to say in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What kind of people should we be? In all holy conduct and godliness, looking toward and hasting toward the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And then he goes on to say, Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And he concludes the chapter in verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. The witness, the testimony of the Noation deluge is absolute. And the surety of the coming day of great destruction of this earth is equally absolute. The only way you can survive it is to be changed from flesh to a spirit being by that time.